Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. said no to her. She blew up. She started cussing me out. She never cussed me out. Never. She started cussing me out. She said, well, you know what? I'm going to get somebody else. Kathy Torres was born in Orange County, California on June 4, 1973, and grew up in a close, tight-knit family in Placentia, California. Kathy was very outgoing and determined to pursue a career in social work. In September 1993, Kathy's sister, Tina, married a man named Armando Lopez. Armando's brother, Samuel Augustin Lopez, who went by Sam, had been Kathy's high school sweetheart, and the two reconnected at the wedding. Both Sam and Kathy's families lived in the same neighborhood, and they would sometimes hang out with Sam's cousin, Xavier Lopez. For the next five months, Kathy and Sam's relationship would be on and off again until they eventually broke up and 20-year-old Kathy began dating a man named Albert. Around the time, Kathy was taking a sociology course at Cal State Fullerton and living with her mom, Mary, stepfather, and three siblings. She worked at a local drugstore, and after school, she would tutor and mentor needy children in her neighborhood. She was a straight-A student with a love for music and always wanted to help others. On Saturday, February 5, 1994, Kathy came home that night and couldn't get out of her car. When her brother went out to help her, he noticed she was under the influence of something and her undergarments were missing. Her family found this strange because she had never used drugs before. The next day, her sister noticed that someone had slashed the tires of Kathy's car. However, Kathy couldn't remember what happened to her car, but mentioned going to see Sam after work. She said that Sam had asked her to run away with him and get married, but when Kathy hesitated to answer, he got very angry. The two then got into an argument after Sam spotted a hickey on Kathy's neck that Albert had given her. That same night, a police officer reported seeing the couple arguing and Kathy crying. The officer had given them a ticket twice that night, one for running a stop sign and the other for drinking in a parking lot. Two days after that incident, Albert tried to take his own life, but thankfully survived, but sadly ended up in a coma. Kathy was now in a difficult position. She was super stressed by Albert's coma and had to tell Sam that she didn't want to marry him. The next Saturday, February 12, 1994, her shift at the drugstore ended at 8 p.m. After that, she was never seen again. The next morning, Mary noticed that Kathy wasn't in her bed. She reached out to some of Kathy's friends, but they hadn't seen her either. Kathy's family called the Placentia police, but they were told they had to wait 24 hours before they could report her missing. She then went looking for her daughter and her dark red 1990 Toyota Corolla. 
By Monday, when there was still no sign of Kathy, she was officially reported missing. A week later, a police officer found Kathy's car abandoned in a hospital parking lot. The front seat was covered in blood, and there was blood found on the back bumper. Part of the gear shift had broken off, and one of her shoes was on the floorboard. They also noticed a piece of plastic sticking out from the trunk. When officers opened it, they were shocked to find Kathy's decomposing body. The car and Kathy's remains had sat there unnoticed for an entire week. She had been stabbed to death in a severe overkill before being placed in the trunk where she was left to die. There were fingerprints inside the trunk lid and signs that the attack started from inside the car and it appeared that she tried to run away before being murdered. Investigators also found the driving seat position way further back than Kathy could have safely driven, suggesting that a much taller person had been in the driver's seat. With more than 70 stab wounds and no signs of sexual assault or robbery, investigators concluded it was motivated by a personal grudge. All of Kathy's family immediately pointed to Sam as the murderer. Kathy had even told her colleagues that she planned to meet him the day she disappeared. However, when police brought him in for questioning, he claimed that he met Kathy on Thursday instead. Thursday, last Thursday, yeah, she paged me. I met her at the parking lot and she asked me for, for some weed and, I, and, and that totally shocked me because I just never heard her ask for weed. He said they met early because she called and asked for some weed. However, Kathy's family told police that she never smoked. Sam then tried to sway the investigators toward Kathy's boyfriend's family, who he claimed were blaming Kathy for Albert's attempt to take his own life. She was sorry for, for him doing that because she thought it was her fault. I think she was trying to hide from her problems by smoking up. You think so? But why, why would she ask me for some weed? Why would she smoke out if she never does it? When investigators asked Sam where he was at the time of Kathy's murder, he gave a solid alibi. He said he was with his cousin, Xavier, and helped one of his friends move. After that, he said he dropped his cousin off and then met up with his girlfriend. Sam cooperated with the police in every way. He gave his clothes, hair, and blood for further investigation. He even allowed the officers to check his house and car, but they couldn't find any hard evidence to charge him. However, Kathy's family and investigators felt that Sam's behavior was oddly different after Kathy's murder. In the meanwhile, they cleared Kathy's boyfriend's family of involvement. As time passed, Sam moved on with his life and even got married and had a child. In 1996, a new detective took over Kathy's case. He discovered that the original investigators had overlooked numerous things in the case. He began watching the interrogation tapes repeatedly and noticed that Sam lacked emotions regarding Kathy's murder. He also discovered that Sam had called Kathy two days before she disappeared and not the other way around. However, Kathy was at the hospital with her boyfriend at the time, which made Sam furious. Her family even provided some letters to the detective that Sam and Kathy had exchanged while they were still together. The letters showed that Sam was an extremely jealous person. The detective then confronted Sam about the letters and he admitted to being jealous. They also asked him about the night Kathy showed up under the influence of something. While Sam dismissed doing anything to Kathy that night, investigators suspected that he drugged Kathy and then sexually assaulted her out of jealousy. 
Since the detective felt that Sam was connected to Kathy's murder, but had a solid alibi for the night, he began looking at Xavier Lopez, Sam's cousin. He noticed that the original investigators had failed to take fingerprints and blood samples from Xavier. After sending them off for analysis, the results showed that Xavier's blood matched the blood found in Kathy's car. His DNA also matched the touch DNA found on Kathy's shirt, and Sam's DNA was found on the driver's side door and the steering wheel. They also matched Xavier's fingerprints to the ones found in the trunk. They questioned Xavier, who said that he had never been in Kathy's car or anywhere around it. He was then arrested for the murder of Kathy, but the DA declined to file charges because he felt that the evidence wasn't sufficient and there was no clear motive. In 2007, Kathy's socks and shirt were all tested again, and Xavier's DNA was found on both items. At this point, they felt they had enough evidence to make a case, so they arrested Sam, Xavier, and Sam's brother Armando on suspicion of murder. Armando was arrested because he knew what Sam did and persuaded him not to report the crime to the police. At Sam's trial in 2015, the prosecution said that Sam was angry that Kathy said no to running away to elope with him. Sam and Kathy had met up after she finished her shift and went to a restaurant. It's there in her car that the two got into a heated argument, which ended with Sam beating and stabbing her to death. Xavier was waiting nearby and helped Sam move Kathy to the trunk of the car. They then drove to the hospital where Kathy and her car were later found. Remember the DA that originally refused to file charges because of a lack of evidence? Well, he was now Sam's defense attorney. He tried to condemn the prosecutor's argument by referring to Sam's solid alibi. The only problem with the alibi is that he claimed to be with Xavier. This means that since DNA evidence put Xavier at the crime scene, Sam also had to be at the scene. Eventually, Xavier pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter and being an accessory after the fact. As part of the plea deal, he told investigators what happened on the night of February 12, 1994. He said he and Sam met Kathy in Sam's pickup truck. Sam went to Kathy's car alone, and they began to argue. The cousin heard Kathy screaming and went to help her. That's when he found Sam stabbing her to death and tried to pull Sam off of her, but accidentally cut his hand, which led to his DNA being at the scene. He then helped Sam put Kathy in the trunk and then drove the car to the hospital parking lot where they left it. In the end, Xavier was sentenced to four years and eight months. Sam's brother Armando pleaded guilty to dissuading a witness and was sentenced to a year of probation. As for Sam, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to 26 years to life in prison. At sentencing, Sam apologized to the Torres family and took full responsibility for the murder. He was eligible for parole in March 2023, but was denied. He will be up for parole again in 2026. Cynthia Ruth Wood was born on February 13, 1951, and went by Cindy. At the age of 33, Cindy lived in Bradenton, Florida, and was described as a free spirit who was kind and smart. She was married to a man named Barry Wood, and they had two children together. 
By June of 1984, she filed for divorce and was attempting to get custody of their two children, ages three and five. Before this, she had filed charges against Barry, accusing him of physically abusing her and her son from a previous marriage. Around this time, Cindy met a man named Charles Michael Stevens, but he wasn't who he said he was. The name he was using was just an alias, and his real name was Donald Santini. Before showing up in Florida, he lived in Texas with his wife and daughter. However, all that would change after he robbed a convenience store with a knife and stole $270. After a warrant was issued for his arrest, he fled the state and began using the alias. Santini ended up in Florida and got a job as a janitor at a hotel in Longboat Key. He eventually met and befriended Pamela Kincaid, and the two moved in together. Pamela's children attended a daycare center just a few blocks away called Cape Vista Child Care Center, where Cindy worked as a manager. Cindy met with Santini after he called her, promising to provide information about Barry that could help her win custody of their two children. On June 4, 1984, Cindy was seen leaving her home with Santini and was never seen alive again. Five days later, on June 9th, her body was found in a water-filled ditch at Also Brook Drive in Riverview, Florida. An autopsy determined she had been strangled to death. Santini had already fled the area, but Pamela came forward and said that he confessed to killing Cindy. Once investigators had that information, they put out a first-degree murder warrant for his arrest. As investigators dug in further, they discovered that Charles Michael Stevens wasn't the only alias he was using. After fleeing, he would go on the run for the next 40 years using 13 different aliases. As the years went by, he was featured on America's Most Wanted in 1990, 2005, and 2013. Santini's trouble with the law began in 1978 when he was convicted of sexual assault while serving in the U.S. Army in Frankfurt, Germany. Upon returning to his home state of Texas, he was charged with aggravated robbery concerning the convenience store robbery. He confessed, but then fled to Florida. Santini eventually wound up in San Diego, married once again, and had another daughter who is now grown. This picture here is with his most recent wife, taken in 2013. In 2018, Santini was interviewed by ABC San Diego after two people died in an apartment building that he managed. In early June 2023, Santini was finally caught by federal agents in San Diego, California after he applied for a passport using one of his many aliases. At the time of his arrest, he was living under the name Wellman Simmons in Campo, California. While awaiting extradition in California, Santini also wrote a 15-page letter to the KGTV news station in San Diego. In it, Santini said he had an abusive childhood and admits to sexual assault, but later claims he has since been to therapy. And while he doesn't mention Cindy in the letter, he does end it by saying that he is sorry for all the wrong he has done in his life. Santini is currently in jail awaiting trial. David Malcolm was born and raised in Connecticut and grew up loving music and playing the guitar. His parents died when he was in his late teens, and he and his sister Hope were taken in by a family in New Canaan, Connecticut. 
David later graduated from Cornell University and was said to love the outdoors, especially the Ithaca's gorges. One spring, he worked on the eastern shore of Long Island, teaching students about marshes and wildlife. He had also traveled extensively after college, touring around India and the Far East, where he became interested in meditation. In the late 1980s, David began helping those in need by working in a psychiatric home and at a suicide prevention and crisis service, where he counseled troubled teenagers and gave the homeless a place to sleep. In 1984, he was hired part-time at the Red Cross Emergency Community Shelter at 717 West Court Street in Ithaca, New York. Two years later, 26-year-old David was given a full-time position. The shelter was known for taking in homeless people who were recently released from prison and people who had lost their homes to a house fire and had nowhere else to go. On February 11, 1987, David was working a 24-hour shift at the shelter alone. The next day, he was tragically found stabbed to death inside the shelter's office. Investigators theorized that David was most likely murdered during the afternoon of the day before. David's death sent shockwaves through his community, with one of his former co-workers, Nina Miller, saying, He was the best of what young people can be. He was idealistic, sensitive, warm, and very bright. He was a wonderful role model for kids. He was wise beyond his years. Unfortunately, the investigation into the murder went cold at the end of 1988 and stayed that way, despite the case being revisited several times in the 1990s and again in 2011. In 2016, the Ithaca Police Department appointed a new deputy chief, Vincent Monticello. After the promotion, he decided to take another look at David's case. Monticello quickly realized that a potential suspect had been on investigators' radar back in 1987. The man was a former associate of David's who was now living in Buffalo, New York. During multiple interviews with the suspect, his story consistently changed. However, as promising as the suspect seemed, DNA would rule him out. In 2019, 32 years after the murder, investigators received an anonymous tip that led them to the boyfriend of a teenage girl from Newfield, New York. She had traveled 20 minutes to the Red Cross in Ithaca seeking shelter from her abusive boyfriend. The boyfriend then showed up and demanded to know where his girlfriend was. When David refused to tell him, the man stabbed him to death. However, the man would never face justice because he died in 2019. They have also withheld his name. One article I read said they confirmed he was the murderer through DNA, but the Justice for David Malcolm Facebook page wrote a comment saying they had no way to collect it. Regardless, the investigators involved now consider this is a closed case. This next case brings us to Quebec, Canada, where 19-year-old Ghislaine Potvin was a college student living with two other female students in an apartment on Panay Street in Jean-Kier, a borough of Saguenay, Quebec. On the night of April 27, 2000, Ghislaine's roommates were away, leaving her alone in her apartment. Sadly, the next morning, she was found beaten, sexually assaulted, and strangled to death. On July 3rd of the same year, a Laval University student woke up to a man strangling her. 
She was then sexually assaulted and left for dead. When she regained consciousness, she was thankfully able to call 911 and survive the horrifying ordeal. DNA traces found at the scene linked the two crimes to the same suspect. However, they were unable to find the suspect and the cases would go unsolved for the next 22 years. In 2009, a man named Claude LaRoche, who had been a suspect in the case, was finally cleared after his DNA was compared to the DNA found at the crime scene. In 2018, the case was reopened when a five-person cold case unit enlisted the help of 25 more officers with the Quebec Provincial Police. In 2022, using advancements in DNA, the killer was finally identified as Marc-Andre Grenin. He was subsequently arrested and charged with first-degree murder and sexual assault. He's also charged with attempted murder and sexual assault stemming from the attack in July 2000. Over the years, Grennan has been arrested up to 20 times between 1993 and 2006, with the largest sentence being three months in jail. Police are now looking into the possibility that he might be involved in numerous other crimes against women from 1993 to 2022. Hopefully, he will finally be put behind bars for good so he can never hurt another innocent person. Vicki Renee Johnson was born in Kern County, California on February 19, 1956. At the age of 34, Vicki lived in Seaside, California and was the mother of three struggling with addiction. She was also a teaching aide at the local Seaside Preschool. On January 3, 1991, her body was found near a playground in the city's Sabato Park neighborhood. This area at the time was well known for its horrific, violent crimes, and Vicky's murder was no exception. She had been tortured, strangled, suffocated, and set on fire. DNA was discovered under her fingernails during the autopsy, showing that she fought for her life. However, even with the DNA, the case would go unsolved for the next 32 years. Not long after the murder, investigators singled in on a potential suspect by the name of Joseph Dermonti Mitchell Jr. Mitchell was a known felon who had sexually assaulted a young woman and beat up her disabled mother. He went to jail for the crime but served less than four years. He was then released back into society where his crimes against women would continue. However, years later, DNA would prove he wasn't Vicky's killer. Finally, in 2023, the DNA was run through the national database and matched to Frank Lewis McClure. McClure was previously convicted of an assault with a deadly weapon, leading to the collection of his DNA. During the 90s, McClure was arrested for battery, resisting officers, and domestic violence, to name a few. He was definitely not your model citizen, but those who knew him were still shocked to learn about the murder he committed in 1991. However, he would never serve time for the murder because he died in October 2021 at the age of 77. It's unclear if Vicki and McClure knew each other, but they were both local to the area and were both known drug users. By the end of McClure's life, he became old and frail and was said to be friendly with his neighbors, which shocked them even more when they learned about the murder. Vicki's surviving family are happy to finally have some long-awaited closure.
Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.